0: A vibrant young woman on the verge of graduation. A horrific crime scene and seemingly random attack. Her co-worker survived to tell police what happened, but did it all happen the way she claimed, or was this another victim, or was this other victim responsible for the horrible deed? This week's episode is Jaina Murray, the Lulu Lemon murder. Up, in the night. Your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood.
1: I'm gonna kill you. Well, not since the white rock machete murder has a case affected me so much as this one it was a hard one for sure to <sighs> uh to research and
0: yeah we get you have to kind of take a break during the research to oh come, man come back
1: from so many like last night i still had so much to do and i finally had to tell myself i mentally cannot read one more thing about this fair it started affecting my dreams I, w- I had nightmares two nights in a row mm-hmm. It, man my uh anxiety has been off the charts just i told tommy of course any of the cases we cover that involves someone being killed no one ever deserves it nothing is you know no, i'm not saying one murder is worse than another but i think these cases like the white rock one and this one I've really analyzed why they get to me the way that they do. Mm-hmm. And it's because these people were not involved in anything that would lead you to believe this could happen.
0: Yeah, it, it definitely is out of totally out of left field. Yeah. It's what you would imagine is just another day. You're texting your friend who you're supposed to meet for dinner and they say, ooh, I'll see you next time. I have to cancel. Hope you survive. And they don't know that that message is going to be the last thing they ever Mm -hmm. say to you.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Or that two hours after you text them, hope you survive, your friend is brutally murdered in a retail store. It's just those, especially the White Rock machete, just totally random um, victim. But again, like, you I feel like I can relate more to these because I just mm-hmm. started imagining these poor parents and what they went through and their daughter is just working at a, a retail job. I've had a ton of retail jobs. Mm-hmm. This could be anyone that ever worked in a retail job and mm-hmm. your coworker, you just piss them off and not even like a huge thing that you piss them off about and they just fucking lose it and and kill yeah. you. You know, I mean, so I think I can relate more to ones like this, which is why they affect me so much. And especially because even though she was 30, she was someone's daughter and the parents Mm -hmm. were so involved in the trial and stuff that I just think how fucking heartbreaking as a parent to go through something like that. For sure. And there and she lived, you know, there in Houston and she lived
0: kind of far away. And of course, they had the son that was deployed. So you as a parent have to think, okay, I've raised them as best Mm -hmm. I can. They're going out into the world on their own. And I live far. You know, I lived in Chicago. I lived in New Orleans, far away from my parents. And I'm sure now that I'm back home and closer and getting to the age where I want to have kids, I think, oh, my God, how did you like how did you do that? How did you emotionally handle me being that far away? Because this is exactly what happened in this case is exactly what their probably their absolute worst fear Mm -hmm. was, was that. They, you, But then you can't live like that every day. Mm-hmm. You have to just say, she's going to be fine. She's going to go to work. She works in a super nice area. There's no crime. It's upscale. She's, you know, going to school, going to work, going home, going to the gym, going on hikes. She'll be fine. She'll be fine. And it's the, you know, you get that call and it's the worst call.
1: Mm-hmm. I ask myself every day, how am I emotionally going to handle <laughs> raising a child? I mean, right now... It's Although it's hard, they're at home and they're with you. Mm-hmm. But even when they start going to school and stuff, I don't know how to emotionally deal with them being away from me for six, eight hours of the day and you don't know what's going on. I think about just... I mean, I have an answer, but... Just what are you... What? Cameras? Live stream. Live stream, live stream body face, cam. Face time.
0: <laughs> Put a body cam. Put a GoPro to their forehead. Uh-huh. Live stream it. Get them a phone in their pocket. Then you know. I'm going to pull a
1: black mirror and just have a microchip (laughs) implanted in all of them. Although that does (laughs) not end well for that mother. So maybe I shouldn't.
0: But yeah, I mean. Don't ever do what's on black mirror. (laughs)
1: It's a rule of thumb. That's true. Yeah. No matter how old your kids are, they're still your kids. And anything this tragic happening is just, as we'll see, it just rips an entire family apart. For sure. We had a lot of people suggest this one. It is a very well-known case. In fact, I was reading an article that said. It's one of the probably top five uh, most infamous crime scenes of the past decade, and I think too because the photos ended up mm-hmm.
0: on the internet and things like that. Um, and also, to this week is
1: ten years. Oh, it was March eleventh, twenty eleven. Yeah. Well, so. Elsa Pear, Hannah Johnson, and Taylor Wallsmith. Thank you for the suggestion on this one. I think I'd heard. I'd seen things about, oh, y'all should do this one. or But I had never looked up what it was. Yeah. And I'll be honest, had I known ahead of time, we may not have done this one. Because sometimes I, we don't know until we're in too deep that, oh, shit, this is something that it's too much for us to handle.
0: I would like to apologize because I did not tell you as I began. Because we kind of research in tandem. Like, yeah, I'll do a, about a week ahead. And I did not message you and be like, oh, Paris told me I had to turn off the Snapped episode because it was way too graphic. Mm, yeah. Uh, and I probably should have. Uh, but you, you're you like, oh, we'll do this one. It's fine. And I'm like, okay. I assumed that. I should have uh, done my I due did diligence. I should have
1: done my due diligence. Yeah, I did not know. I yeah,
0: I did not know. <laughs> yeah. I went ahead and watched the Snapped episode first just to kind of get an overview. And he came in with dinner and said, what? Jesus Christ, <laughs> what do you have on? Yeah. Uh, which with me, it's always either like Snap, true crime, or a lot of times Dr. Pimple Popper, he cannot... Oh, I'm or... not a fan of that either. Yeah. Uh, I do like My Strange Addiction, which can get also get really graphic, mm-hmm. so... Uh, but I should have probably thrown it out there. So, <laughs> there are <laughs> it's... certain episodes that we cover that uh not going to be funny. Mm-mm. Not going to be a funny one. Uh, and definitely just really, hopefully, doing Jaina justice mm-hmm. in telling her story and what happened and uh, you know, we always try to figure out the bigger picture uh, on a case and I don't, it, it's hard because much like the machete one, it's like, what is the bigger picture? Yeah. I mean, maybe the machete one was a little bit, he, he needed more mental health, mm-hmm. help uh, in addressing those issues. But here, I don't
1: know that that was even a factor. Yeah. I don't know what happened here. This one has kept me up thinking just as I'm sure not a second of the day goes by that her family also doesn't wonder That's why true. was this necessary? Uh-huh. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Jana Troxell Murray was born November 22, 1980, in Wichita, Kansas. She spent her childhood in Houston, Texas, with her parents, David and Phyllis Murray, and her brothers, Hugh and Dirk. Jana was a dancer and a track star, setting records for throwing discus. She later obtained her business degree from George Washington University. After graduation, Jaina worked for five years as a marketing representative for Halliburton. Yeah, they said she was such a good dancer
0: that the track coach said, hey, you I, try this out. And then she, she just did it. She was a natural athlete and started running and started throwing discus
1: and setting records. Interesting that one would equate dance with track. I guess an athlete is an athlete. The endurance mm-hmm. that you have to have for both. Jaina then went on to get her master's and an MBA at Johns Hopkins, She decided to write her master's thesis on upscale yoga retail store, Lululemon's business model. One of their mantras being elevating the world from mediocrity to greatness. As part of her thesis research, she took a job at the store in 2011. After her thesis was complete, Jane decided to stay at her job until the end of the semester. She was promoted to sales team leader and was described as well-liked by her coworkers. She loved animals, dance, travel, running, yoga, and volunteering for nonprofit organizations, they said that she just was a big Lululemon fan. That she was, she respected
0: their business model from a obviously the business perspective, but also from the ethical perspective of self improvement. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Lululemon's all about like setting goals for yourself, personal improvement of its employees, investing in employees, and promoting them with from within. And uh, she recognized that from a business perspective that that was. Something that
1: she, you know, she wanted to be a part of that organization. I mm-hmm. believe they're also uh, been in some hot water some for some real problematic stuff, too. What? Oh, no. A lot, yeah. The, see, the see-through pants? <laughs> Racism. Um, oh, yikes. Uh, Appropriating
0: culture, probably. Yes.
1: And um, fat shaming to a degree. Yeah. Just uh, the CEO, I don't know if he is anymore, at one point said that our pants aren't meant to be worn by women whose thighs rub together, whose thighs touch and stuff like that. And I actually Yikes. read this whole article about um the culture amongst like the the upper uh employees there and everything, like in corporate and how It's a boys club and real problematic and there's a lot of interpersonal relationships between the CEO and presidents and lower level people that get special treatment and it's a whole, it's a whole culture.
0: This is a a case (laughs) of a store just knocking it out with the branding because
1: I was like, it's probably female run, it's like empowerment. No, that was actually the joke amongst the women was that all of these uh, men run this company that is for is, is for clothes for women yeah wow and a bunch I of like my parties with the the president like providing drugs and a lot of favoritism yeah. and like inner circle stuff we've linked the article in the show notes so <laughs> yeah but we're not still, making this up no 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 oh, no woo. yeah so no but on the surface they do have this business model of um wellness and, and empowerment and everything and if that's what you're writing your thesis on, I think a great way to learn more is to work there. That makes total yeah. sense. And
0: that to me, that shows, OK, that's a person who's serious about their thesis, mm-hmm. not like I'm just going to read a bunch of articles. It's mm-hmm. like, might as well go work there. And then and then you go in to do it as research and you get promoted. So. Yeah,
1: that's the kind of person she was. That's how seriously mm-hmm. she took it. What sucks is she was just going to stay until she was out of school. It's March. Mm-hmm. The semester ends in May. hmm. Born May 9, 1982, in Washington State, Brittany Norwood was one of nine children. Brittany was an excellent soccer player who was recruited by Stony Brook University on Long Island, New York, on an athletic scholarship. Rachel Roderick, a former soccer teammate of Brittany's, told WJLA, She was a great, funny, nice girl and a good soccer player. However, not everyone felt that way. While in college in 2003, Brittany was accused of stealing from teammates, classmates, and roommates. One of Brittany's former teammates, Megan Healy, told ABC News.
0: Other girls on the team told me things like, watch your locker, keep it locked, she's been known to steal things.
1: Leanna Yes told the Washington Post that she and Brittany had been best friends in college, but had a falling out because the girl was like a klepto. Brittany was eventually expelled from college due to multiple incidents of theft, causing her to lose her lucrative soccer scholarship according to the Oxygen Channel's snapped Brittany Norwood episode. At 27 years old, she got a job in Washington, D.C. at a hotel, but later took a job at Lululemon in an effort to pursue a career in fitness. She began at the Georgetown location, but soon transferred to the Bethesda store to be near a gym she planned to apply to. It was here she met Jana Murray. Yeah, it's a shame when you,
0: you know, you're getting a scholarship to do what you love to do, to Mm -hmm. play. She was very athletic. They said she wanted to be an athletic trainer. And you're on that path. And she has apparently, according to classmates and obviously the prosecutor who was quoted on the Oxygen channel, she's got this theft problem Mm -hmm. that is getting in the way of what would be a good career path Mm -hmm. of I went to school for athletic, you know, on a soccer scholarship. I've studied whatever, kinesiology or physical therapy or whatever you want to study to be a trainer. And she had to leave to go. And then she works at this hotel as a – the she was the liaison to VIP guests. But that wasn't really what she
1: wanted to do. She really wanted to be in the athletic mm-hmm. world. Yeah. Theft as well as lying seemed to be a pattern. Mm-hmm. She There was another incident, too, where a – after everything came out, a um, hairstylist went public saying – I did her hair. She owed me like uh, a bunch of money. And when she was supposed to pay at the end of it, she claimed that she couldn't find her wallet in her purse and that one of my employees had stolen $1,000 from her and she left. We thought that someone had stolen from her. So we, you know, of course, apologized and told her not to worry about and everything. But then it came out that none of that was true. So it seems to be this pattern of, Lying and stealing. Yeah, Grifton. Yes. Three and a half weeks after Brittany had started working at the Bethesda location, on Friday, march eleventh, twenty eleven, around nine PM, Brittany and Jana closed the Lululemon store. As shift leader, Jaina was required to conduct a nightly bag check of all employees. It was during this that Jana discovered some yoga pants in Brittany's purse, that Jana believed were stolen. In the book, Murder in the Yoga Store, Journalist Peter Ross Range says that Britney's co workers had already suspected her of stealing money and perfume from some of the employees and had even discussed using hidden cameras to catch her. When Jana called to report the theft of their manager, Jana allegedly said, We caught the bitch. According to Range's book, the GM replied, We'll deal with it tomorrow. Jana and Britney closed the store at 9.51 p.m. According to Britney, when she got to the train station, she realized she didn't have her wallet and had left it at the store. Not having Jaina's number, she texted a co-worker who gave it to her. Brittany then called Jaina, who agreed to meet her back at the store so she could retrieve her belongings. And this is, you know,
0: where we, where for me, yeah. it, it becomes clear there was some type of plan yes, in advance. I agree. Also we should point out that we caught the bitch is from only murder in the yoga store the book there was no yes. correct I couldn't we couldn't find other sources and it was not included in the trial so it's not No in fact officially as it's we'll, of as we'll
1: see the call to the manager none of that was included in the trial.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Around 10 p.m. employees at the Apple store which shared a wall with Lululemon heard some strange sounds. Security camera footage from the store show two employees with their ears pressed up against the wall in order to hear better. They heard dragging, grunting, butting, high-pitched squealing, screaming, and yelling. The employees then heard one female voice, which sounded hysterical, and another female voice saying, Talk to me! Don't do this! Talk to me! What's going on? This was followed by additional screaming, yelps, and yells, and later a voice quietly saying, God help me. Please help me. It is believed these were the last words of Jana Murray. Despite the alarming sounds and cries for help, none of the Apple employees went next door to see what was going on, or called the police. The store's security guard was listening to his iPod during the attack, unaware of what was happening on the other side of the wall. Later, at trial, when asked why they hadn't called the cops, the employees said they had chalked it up to, "...just drama." a decision that Judge Robert Greenberg called callous indifference, according to a post on Medium by BioRecovery.
0: Yeah, this uh footage is disturbing. Yeah. Watching them with their heads against the wall. Apparently in the uh the appellate decision, you know, they run through the facts, you know, based on the testimony. And they said one employee did try to say, well, I told the security guard he should go check it out. But it, nobody checked it out. Nobody. No. And the Lululemon store is glass in the front. It's yeah. not like anybody's asking you to go kick the door down, but go peep your eyes, you know, look through the
1: glass. Even if it is drama, go over there and look. Yeah, at it. Yeah, exactly. But the type of things that they heard—that's not drama. To say no. to say we thought that was just drama. It wasn't two women just like yelling about uh, uh, I don't a dude or something. Yoga pants yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I mean like there someone's crying for help. It sounds like the place is being destroyed over there dragging yes grunting that's way more than drama and please help me god please help me it's way more than drama way what more. the hell and what even if they did tell the security guard he also had his freaking earbuds in, listening to his ipod sitting down who why are you doing that that's not what yeah. a security guard does and if somebody tells you hey this is going on next door that's your job. Is to go mm-hmm. go over there and see what's going on. If you don't feel like doing it, pick up the phone and call the cops. That's a, that's my thought. And even if you say, "Well, I'm the
0: Apple Store security guard. I'm not the uh, the whole shopping center security guard. I'm just for the Apple Store." Like you said, just then call the police. Yeah. Then you're then you as a human being have said, "I'm going to step in as a human." I think we live in a we live in a society where. We all go, it's not my my problem, Who you know, whatever, which is fine on the surface. But when it's something like this, where they couldn't have known that this brutal incident was happening next door, and this is their own testimony, we're not putting words right. in their mouth. They testified that they heard this heinous series of sounds, verbatim, this is what they testified that they heard, That rises to the level of at least calling the police. God help me,
1: please help me. What do you think is happening over there? I'd like to know that. What did you think was, if it was just drama, what what kind of drama did you think was going on over there? And we'll get into it a little later during the trial about some reasoning and speculation as to why they didn't go over there. Yeah. The next morning, Saturday, March 12th, 2011, just before 8 a.m., the Lululemon store manager, Rachel, arrived to find the doors unlocked. Inside, she was disturbed to see clothes and blood everywhere. Once she heard the sounds of moans, she walked outside and called 911, telling them.
0: I'm opening up my Lululemon store, and our uh, the door was completely open, and I hear someone moaning in the back, and it looks like it's been vandalized, and I'm just really scared to go in.
1: A man waiting to go into the Apple store next door asked Rachel if she needed help. She asked if he would accompany her back inside. As he made his way towards the moaning, he saw a heinous scene including a massive trail of blood leading to the back room. He pushed a door open and saw Jana Murray, dead, on the floor of the store's back hallway. In the bathroom, the man found Brittany Norwood, moaning, lying on the floor with her hands and feet zip-tied. After discovering the two victims, the manager called 911 again, telling the operator,
0: One person seems dead and the other person is breathing.
1: You're standing there waiting to get the new iPad iPad that's coming out, waiting for the Apple store to open. Don't think you thought this is how your morning was going to go.
0: Yeah, and he had gotten there, I think the Apple store opened at 10 or 1030, and so he was there at 8. Probably just thinking he's going to hang out outside. Yeah,
1: just to to be one of the first ones, yeah. Police arrived shortly thereafter and assumed that a robbery had occurred based on the ransacked front area and empty cash registers. Then they found the horrific scene at the back of the store. Jaina's body was mutilated and barely recognizable. Brittany's hands and feet were bound. She had some cuts on her hands and one to her forehead. The crotch to her pants had also been cut open. And this
0: is, uh, you know, a a well-known photograph uh, associated with this, and it's in the Snapped uh, episode where she's laying on the ground in a sports bra, yoga pants, and she has her hands zip-tied. And she's very bloody uh, and, and in fact, that's one of the things that Paris saw when he came and he said, oh my gosh, you're, why are, why are they showing this murder victim? And I said, she's actually alive. Keep watching. There's yeah. some more
1: that is going to happen. Mm-hmm. First responders took Brittany to the hospital to receive care. There Montgomery County police detective Deanna Mackey questioned the assumed victim. According to Brittany, the two women closed the store around 9 PM and then left around 9 45. However, Brittany said they returned because, I got to the metro and realized I didn't have my wallet. Brittany told Detective Mackey she then called Jana to unlock the store. Once they arrived at the store, they couldn't find the wallet. That's when Brittany said two Caucasian men with medium builds, dressed all in black and wearing ski masks, attacked the two women, having supposedly followed them inside. They then beat them, raped them, and eventually killed Jana. while, according to Brittany, she helplessly watched her co-worker be dragged around the room by her hair before being viciously slain. Brittany claimed that after she was also sexually assaulted, she blacked out and didn't remember anything until she was taken away in an ambulance. The recording of
0: the bedside interrogation is, I mean, Detective Mackey is super sensitive. She's very thoughtful because she believes that she is speaking to the victim of a sexual assault and obviously witnessing something horrible And several times throughout, Brittany gets really choked up and starts crying and saying, oh, this was my fault. I shouldn't have gone. I should have remembered my wallet. I can't believe we we didn't lock the door behind us. This is totally my fault. I should have done more to try to help her. And Detective Mackey tells her, it's okay. It's okay. Take your time. Take a breath. It's a
1: masterful acting. Yeah, Masterful. How... Wow. What, what a feeling for that detective once she learns what really happened to think yeah. you were just sitting there your heart going out to this girl. Mm-hmm. And just, I mean, you know, she's holding her hand and she's mm-hmm. like, take your time.
0: We can take a break if you need it. She's like I said, textbook classic. She's very victim centered. She's being very trauma informed. She's like letting Brittany take the lead. But hearing her, you just that mm-hmm. voice and just fake her fake crying. And I mean, it probably, she's also crying cause she feels guilty and everything, but man, it's,
1: it's something. It's jaw dropping. It really is. It's something to, to hear to know that people can, can lie like that. And also the officer said when they arrived at the scene and found her tied up, she had her eyes closed and she would not open them. Mm-hmm. And they, one of the office- a female officer, knelt down beside her and went to touch her arm and she flinched and everything. And they're, of course, thinking, Oh, this girl's been attacked. Of course, like she's completely traumatized. She mm-hmm. didn't open her eyes or talk until they got to the hospital.
0: Mm-hmm. So, and she was cut up and bloody yeah. as well. She had a, a wound on her head and everything, like you said. And, and, and head, head he- facial.
1: They bleed a lot. Bleed a lot. Mm-hmm. Ask anyone in the WWE. You That's can right. uh, self inflict a head wound to cause a lot of blood for dramatic purposes. Oh, man. Yeah, they carry um, razor blades in between their fingers. That's right, because I watched The
0: Life Life and Crimes of New Jack. Highly recommend it. And he was supposed to have a small razor blade, Mm -hmm. and he was wrestling this amateur, and he had like a scalpel. Ooh. And he, yeah, that's a whole. uh, We should do an episode on New
1: Jack. That's a whole whole world. Mm -hmm. Word of the brutal attack and murder quickly spread throughout downtown Bethesda, an area known for its upscale shopping and lack of crime. Something so heinous was unheard of, and shoppers, employees, and residents were terrified that the two men responsible were on the loose. Stores installed security cameras, employees had security guards escort them to their cars, and residents Sluice tried to track down who may have recently sold two men's ski masks, according to the Washington Post. A $150,000 reward was also set up to help bring the killers to justice. So for almost a week, she is telling people th- this happened her family mm-hmm. caught oh, they all yeah the media everyone is under the assumption that she is a victim this is what happened she's ha- makes no means to come come uh, forward with the truth or anything Mm-mm. for six days the Bethesda community lived in fear many had flashbacks to the DC sniper attacks that had occurred not far from there in October of 2002 However, from the beginning, something about Brittany's story didn't add up, and police were about to make a shocking revelation. From the onset of the investigation, there were red flags in Brittany's account of what had happened, one of the biggest being her injuries. Compared to the 331 injuries Jana had suffered, Brittany only had a few superficial cuts on her hands and head, and while she claimed that both she and Jana had been sexually assaulted— rape kits performed on both women came back negative and this is when the detectives start saying hmm
0: and detective uh, one of the detectives said it's extremely extremely sensitive when someone claims that this has happened and we see these tests and they've come back negative we're very sensitive mm-hmm. to saying well you're lying yeah, well, we sure. actually know you're lying so they said okay we're going to keep proceeding that she's a victim keep collecting the evidence let's see, let's see what else we can find. But that's when they start going, huh,
1: that doesn't fit. Well, and they know for sure that Jane is a victim and nothing came back on her. Mm -hmm. So there's another big red flag, too. Police were also suspicious of how Brittany's hands had been tied above her head. She told officers the masked men had tied her up after sexually assaulting her. However, to the trained officers, it looked like she had done it herself. Her injuries also appeared to be self-inflicted. So, again, it starts being one of these pieces of evidence. Yeah. You're like, hmm, and then it starts to add up and add up. Police wondered why Brittany hadn't tried to leave after the attackers had left the store. Why did she wait there all night, lying next to her coworker's dead body, rather than try to escape? There was also the matter of the bloody footprints found at the scene of the crime. Police found two sets of prints, but neither of them belonged to a masked intruder. One belonged to Brittany herself. The other set was traced to a pair of size 14 demo shoes, customers used when trying on clothes. Police believe Brittany used the pair of shoes to make it appear as if a large man had been walking around, according to ABC News. And that was the other problem is it was only one
0: pair of men's shoes or one pair of men's footprints. The shoes were in the rack, although they had been cleaned. But also, he said... There was no footprints leading out. And her footprints are also there. Yes. was not well thought out. Not well thought out. No, no. And he said, specifically, they obviously would have had exit footprints and there was none. Yeah, no, exactly.
1: The evidence against Brittany continued to mount. Detectives were confident that rather than a victim of this heinous crime, Brittany was actually the perpetrator. State's attorney, John McCarthy, knew this was a sticky situation. He told the Washington Post.
0: You gotta get this right. This is a hell of an allegation to make against somebody the community has embraced
1: as a victim. The final damning piece of forensic evidence came when detectives discovered Brittany's blood inside Jana's car. As Brittany told it, the masked men had forced her to move the car, which had been parked in front of the store, to a street a few blocks away. She said the men threatened to kill her if she didn't return within 10 minutes, according to ABC News. When police asked why she didn't escape when she had the chance, she had no answer according to Bio Recovery's post on Medium. And she had given a statement
0: willingly and then left, and then they tested the forensic evidence in the car, and they're like, well, we got to get her back. And so they asked her to come in and give exclusionary DNA sample and fingerprints, and she agreed to, and that's when they had to say, hey, you know, we found this uh, blood in your in the car, and... What do you, what happened? And she's like, well, I, I wanted to come tell you that. I, I, that's why I came up here. I think, and I want to say her brother had called them and said, oh, she's got something else she wants to tell you. So it's like, she starts realizing she's got to alter the story sure. and manipulate the story because she had laid it out one way. And now, of course, they're going to find her car. It's parked not very far from the Lululemon store. And obviously they're going to find blood in it. As as heinous as this attack was, she was covered in blood and she'd also injured herself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there was blood on the gear shift, on the steering wheel, on the seat. Jana had parked, double parked her car right in front of the store because she assumed she was running in for 10 minutes to mm-hmm. get this wallet. Well, that didn't happen. So Brittany moves it to a a lot a few blocks away. So it, it's not just sitting there with lights flashing or gets mm-hmm. a ticket and somebody comes up, you know, a cop comes up to see what's going on and discovers stuff and everything. She takes it to the lot and she sits in Jaina's car after having just murdered her for an Mm -hmm. hour and a half Mm -hmm. planning how to cover all of this up. Wow. Yeah. This is... uh, We'll get to the defense, but I think all of this goes against that. And also, when she did do the interview with the cops, Mm -hmm. they allowed her brother to go in the room with her. Mm -hmm. And when they left... Uh, the audio picked up him saying, "Like, why did you do this?" And she said, "I don't know." But then she also admitted that she had been caught stealing. Okay, yeah, and that's and she had talked to the she talked to him at the
0: bedside. She came in on her own once, and then they she they came to her house as well and talked to mm-hmm. her. So she was apparently cooperating, which you would have to if you're trying to position yourself as a victim. You would have to cooperate because oh, sure. if you said, "Oh, I need a lawyer," ah, then. They would, I mean, I'm all for asking for a lawyer, but her motive here was to, to position herself as a victim, so she was having to play the game, and I think it just started getting away from her. Yeah. She couldn't, and her, and again, like you said, her family had flown in, and we're staying with her, her brother and sister and parents and everybody, and we're really trying to, you know, help her heal from this horrible thing she had gone through,
1: mm-hmm. and I mean, that family got betrayed. Oh, sure, yeah. They're, the family, her family are victims as well. Yeah. And one of the tech- detectives said when they did go to her house, they heard her in another room talking to, I think, an uncle. And she was like, I just don't want to disappoint you. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, she knows that it's getting away from her and she's going to. Mm-hmm. But still didn't come clean. They just <laughs> all the evidence kept piling up. Yeah. Had, had they not just said, nah, we, we know that you're the person. I don't think she would have come clean at all. Yeah. On March 18th, seven days after the attack, Brittany Norwood was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Assistant State's Attorney Mary Beth Ayers described the difficulty the Bethesda community had, coming to terms with a shocking twist. As humans, we want to believe it's the masked
0: men. We want that. That makes us feel better. You don't want to believe it's the articulate, educated, attractive girl next door. You don't want to believe that because that's someone you might trust. So they actually found these masked men. It was really just two guys leaving uh, work because they saw it on one of the security uh, cameras from one of the other uh, stores. There was two guys around eleven o'clock walking, and they tracked them down. And they they just were guys that happened to randomly work at a store. But they, yeah,
1: and they, it's they, not they like f- it's not like Brittany knew that she just made this up, no. and then coincidentally these guys happened to be. On yeah. a camera around the same time, yeah.
0: But you think, and and they had an alibi. Of course, the time of the in- altercation that the Apple Store employees, you know, they could pinpoint when the mm-hmm. attack had all happened. Those guys had been at work. You know, they had mm-hmm. you know ten, fifteen people had seen where they were. But imagine if they didn't, and yeah. she pointed the finger at these strangers and other people go down for this. Yeah,
1: it's whew. that's how wrongful convictions happen. Yeah. The trial lasted for eight days, throughout late October and early November 2011. In the months leading up to the trial, the defense had hinted at possibly pursuing an insanity defense. However, in their opening statement, defense attorney Douglas Wood made a shocking admission. Yes, they conceded, Brittany killed Jana, but it was not premeditated. Instead, they argued, During that fight, Brittany Norwood lost it. There's no doubt about it. She lost control. The distinction was important first-degree murder under Maryland law carries a maximum penalty of life in prison without parole. Meanwhile, the maximum sentence for second-degree murder is up to 30 years in prison. This was was their only chance. Yep. This was it. Because
0: we were researching and trying to find if there was, you know, a psych evaluation or a history of mental health problems. Or at at one point, the possible defense was going to say that she had some type of head injury. But uh, state's attorney, John McCarthy, said, listen, we talked to— Everybody that's ever—I mean, they really were thorough. Mm-hmm. And he said the most we could corroborate was a knee injury. He said there. Everybody in her family said she has doesn't have anything. You know, she doesn't have any history. You know, like we talk about sometimes with CTE, if mm-hmm. that maybe causes violent outbursts or something. Mm-hmm. He said no, she never had anything like that. Never was you know committed or anything like no. that. And not uh, even a,
1: not even arrested. I mean, she mm-mm. she had had a an issue that they had to go to court for her and her an ex roommate with their landlord for not paying rent mm-hmm. one month. And then yeah. she also had to go to court for owing $20,000 worth of student loans. And yeah. then she had, you know, this, the, the theft stuff at school, but never anything violent. No, no. And so,
0: I mean, the, the idea in Maryland that second degree murder is a fit of unplanned rage. Like that's, what they have to frame it as, and I think they struggle with that, as we'll see throughout the trial, because premeditated, willful,
1: deliberate under Maryland law, that gets you life without parole, possibly. During opening arguments for the prosecution, state's attorney John McCarthy painted a much different picture, one that showed Brittany Norwood's actions were not only sinister, but extremely calculated. He stood before the jury of six women and six men, holding the bloody rope that had been found around Jana's neck in one hand and the metal merchandise display rod Brittany had used to bash in Jana's skull in the other. He described how the blood trail found in the store showed that Jana tried to escape from her attacker through a back door. As the Washington Times reported, McCarthy explained how Jana had fought for her life, sustaining 107 defensive wounds in the process, the most the medical examiner had ever seen on one person. Speaking on the 20-minute attack, McCarthy told the jury. Think about how long this took. Jaina is alive through almost
0: all of this. The last wounds are from the knives. This was not slow. This was not painless. This woman struggled to survive. Yeah, I think this is, I mean, the he, you can tell as all the interviews he's done afterwards, he's deeply passionate about this. He, he really wanted to get justice for Jaina's family and for mm-hmm. Jaina, and he, part of that is, painstakingly going through the evidence, mm-hmm. holding it up for the jury. And it's
1: hard, but it, I think he was extremely effective. Yeah, I agree. The prosecution suffered a setback when the court excluded a key piece of evidence, Jana's phone call to the manager regarding Brittany's theft. The phone call was important as it provided a motive for Brittany's actions. Without it, the defense emphasized that the prosecution had no motive, therefore could not prove it was premeditated murder. Rather, as reported by the Washington Times, the defense argued that Brittany's elaborate staging of the gruesome crime scene and lies she told police. Show someone who got involved in a nightmarish
0: situation and had this imagination and explanation of what happened. This is not first-degree
1: premeditated will from murder. I disagree with this because I think that she... I think from the second they left that store until she called Jaina to meet her back there, she was thinking, how can I... Get rid of her. What can yeah. I do? Because for whatever reason, getting caught stealing was going to upend her life in such a way that this was the only way out. And I think, like they said, her the
0: motive, I guess, was that, you know, she didn't want her reputation in that area to be ruined. That was going to be her ticket to this personal training gig at this nearby wealthy gym, I think. And and the other thing premeditated i think people think oh my gosh they had to plot for months or even days or even hours but in this case once she has sh- she i think what they and uh, eventually feel like happened is that she struck her with the merchandise rod mm-hmm. to me if that single blow is what killed her y- you may have a a cat west situation mm-hmm. right where it's one single injury and you go oh my gosh i was in a rage and this happened and, and oh my gosh but
1: the 20 minutes after it, 331 wounds, eight different weapons that she had to walk around the store and collect. Bingo.
0: That's exactly it. The final the final wound is, you know, the knife wound. She had to walk out of where Jaina was laying, out and around, pick up the knife and come back around. And the, the place that she then, you know, she got her, you stabbed her in the back of the neck, kind of where her spinal cord is. That is premeditated. You got up mm-hmm. and you said, "I'm going to find. I'm going to finish her off." I'm and that's that. That's all you need. That's premeditated right there. Mm-hmm. You don't need to know that this phone call was made. Although I think for a juror, it does help complete the picture, paint the picture. But it's, I mean, it's classic hearsay. You can't right. offer
1: that. But people want I, to reason because they don't want to think that someone could just be such a monster that they're capable of something without feeling like they're justified in some yeah. way. But. It's absolutely hearsay and the judge is right not to include it. But also, you know, even with this
0: in that, it's not a good reason. No, God, no. There's no, no. nothing. Nothing Never. makes no.
1: this a, a good reason. No, and
0: by good reason, I mean something that, you know, when they say, oh, my gosh, I came in the room and this person was attacking my child and I sure. just, you know, did that. To,
1: that's one thing. But, yeah, something like this, it wasn't even close. No, 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 no. Medical examiner Mary Ripple then testified that bruising and bleeding around the wounds indicated that Jana was alive for all of the 331 injuries, including the stab wound in the back of Jana's skull. Ripple stated, She had a pulse. She had
0: had blood pressure. She was bleeding into the wounds. She was alive. According to
1: Patch. So while she was alive, the only saving grace is that, because they, they asked, is it possible she was struck unconscious with the first blow to the head? And the medical examiner said yes. So the only saving grace is thinking maybe she was knocked out and wasn't conscious for the rest of this. But even then, there. and i I mean, like for the family's sake and everything, that's quite possible she kept waking up during it. I mean, yeah. even if your brain is unconscious, your body is still feeling and responding to pain. You're mm-hmm. just not maybe getting those receptors sent to your brain. But, oh, my God. But she had,
0: she had all the defensive wounds. Yeah. She tried to escape. You did hear the grunting and screaming yeah. and dragging from the Apple store. So
1: She fought for her life. It's hard. It's hard. Miller, who conducted Jana's autopsy, went on to say that up to 105 of the wounds were defensive, from Jaina using her arms and legs to try and fight off Brittany. She suffered multiple cuts bruises, stab wounds, ligature marks around her neck, and seven blunt force wounds to her head, including one that crushed her skull. She was alive for all of these, including the final stab through the back of her neck that severed her spinal cord. And that's what eventually killed her. The Emmy said within a minute, she would have been dead from that. Mm -hmm. But Brittany was walking around for 20 minutes, getting hammers, wrenches, Box cutters, a rope, display rods, this big serrated knife. I think. I mean, I saw a picture of all of the the tools that she had used, and I mean, it's like pieces of jagged metal that you know, if you've ever yeah. worked in retail, that like you might use to build a display and stuff. Mm-hmm. The manager, Rachel, testified and said, "Yeah, th- all of these items were in the back area where we kept like our maintenance stuff, paint brushes." Mm-hmm. It's a toolbox, yeah. And she- I
0: believe, if I'm not mistaken, the toolbox was then set on top of her. Wow!
1: When the and, when the police came, and they said, um, because they had a blood splatter expert tes- testify too, and they said blood splatter was found, yes, on the bottom of a display shelf that was about 22 inches off the ground, indicating Jana had been completely laying flat. While Brittany is standing over her, beating her in the head with something to cause that splatter at that at that angle. So she's completely, I mean, who even knows if she's conscious? She mm-hmm. might just be completely out. She's still beating her. She's going around finding different weapons. All of that, in my mind, is premeditated. Every yes. time you leave that, that the body and go and get another yes. box cutter to come back and stab her again, yes. you are making the conscious decision to do that. 100%. At any point, you can stop. Correct. And she did not do that. Mm-hmm. And they did say that one of the areas toward the back
0: hallway, the blood splatter indicated the way that it ran down the wall. It indicated she was initially hit standing, then was hit again crouching, mm-hmm. then was hit even more laying supine. So, like you said, at some point, e- even if there's one outburst of attack that they, you know, that they want to call second degree of like, oh, it's an unplanned fit of rage, the planning starts like
1: exactly like you yeah. said every time she leaves. I think the planning started way before she attacked No, Oh, no, no. no. The, the I think planning the planning started, started maybe when she, asked, when she gets called, the manager gets called in front of her, and she's mm-hmm. like, shit, what am I going to do now? I think so. State's attorney, John McCarthy, held up several items found at the scene, including a rope, wrench, hammer, and a metal merchandise peg. When he asked Miller if Jana's injuries were consistent with such items, she replied, yes. Jana's family who, along with Brittany's family, were present for the entire trial, stepped out of the courtroom prior to Miller's testimony. They were also not present for the nine autopsy photos that were shown to the jury. While the prosecution had tried to admit all 37 photos into evidence, the defense objected, saying it would be unduly prejudicial to their client. In the end, Judge Greenberg ruled the nine photos could be shown as they were relevant to the state's attempt to prove premeditation, according to Patch.
0: And that's just it, you know, you have to, it has to, the probative value has to un- outweigh the undue prejudice, and 37 is a lot, or yeah. is it? Or, or if is it? it yeah. if you're in a situation like this, where you have this significant amount of wounds and injuries, maybe you do need it from all different angles to show
1: head to toe, mm-hmm. front and back, what happened. And the ME even said 331.0. And 107 are conservative numbers because she had so many stab wounds and injuries on her that we couldn't count them all. Yeah. And that's and I think maybe on the
0: judges, he's a smart, good judge from what we can tell that he was being on the conservative side because you don't want to give them anything that's appealable. You don't want to say, well, Mm -hmm. the judge let in 37 photos. That's way too many. You know, so I think he may have. Excluded some and said, you know, pick your best ones, prosecutor. Yeah. And we'll let those in because being thoughtful about not. Although, let's say a judge is impartial. They're not there to do that. But no judge likes to get overturned.
1: Sure. And he also said that he thought the judge said letting all of those in would cause such trauma to the jury that they would just tune out and wouldn't hear any of the testimony, Mm -hmm. which then you're not no. They're, they're what's not, the point yeah. at that point like they can't, they're not doing their job yeah, yeah exactly but that i mean imagine you're on this jury christ do you ever sleep again after after seeing this stuff and hearing these horrible things i mean this and, is what
0: we do as a you know as a hobby and you know try to bring awareness to these cases and uh we do look at some unfortunate things i think as a juror you know when you're there in the room with the family, I think it would be oh, very yeah. hard. To, it would be very hard to be
1: impartial. I will say, yes. for me, yeah, it would be very, very hard. It would. And they said the the voir dire and everything took forever because, mm-hmm. like two thirds of the of the jurors had heard of the case and everything. So for sure, I mean, who's not going to hear about this? And so you know, the judge ordered them like you can't watch TV, you can't get on the internet, like cell phones are banned, everything, but like you said we read and research a lot of this and have to look at some pictures and everything but we can also decide all right i'm done for the night i can't Mm -hmm. i can't do this anymore and turn it off when you have to sit there for eight hours a day or whatever it Mm -hmm. is and listen to this and the family being in the room totally different component hearing the family or you know testify if they do or anything like that and seeing those pictures up close and some of them were were like very up close pictures of her face and everything Mm -hmm. that is it is traumatizing and at some point you would just kind of your body would just check out as a survival tactic tactic and then you're not listening to anything yeah Mm -hmm. the state also called the apple employees to the stand who reiterated how they had heard two female voices on the night of the murder as well as sounds of a struggle and cries for help The jury also saw the surveillance footage showing the employees with their ears pressed up against the adjoining wall during the attack. After listening and taking no action to help, the employees eventually returned to work, believing what they heard was just drama and not anything serious. I mean, you got to live with that the rest of your life, too. The testimony of the employees enraged many people, with some Twitter users calling for them to be fired and even brought up on charges for many it was impossible to understand how these people could hear someone calling out for help and do nothing. Others believed it was a case of the bystander effect, a theory that people are less likely to intervene during an emergency if others are around. Chief of the University of Maryland's police department, David Mitchell, told the Washington Post, It is a phenomenon that is not new.
0: People are pretty good at checking their feelings of concern or fear. They need to not do that.
1: If only one employee working in the Apple store that night had called the police, could it have perhaps saved Jaina's life? This Oof. The internet was ablaze over still this is. testimony and still over the realization that two people heard what was going on. Mm-hmm. A security guard sat there not doing his job. And meanwhile, one of the most vicious attacks, probably the most vicious attack Bethesda has ever seen is happening right next door. Yeah. possibly was preventable. Yeah, it's especially when you hear the very beginning of
0: "Talk to me, talk to me." Oh my God, just mm-hmm. say there's a disturbance at the Lululemon. Also, it's after hours. There's not supposed to be mm-hmm. anybody over there. It's ten o'clock mm-hmm. at night. You know mm-hmm. that the stores around you close. Yeah, I mean, just but you're they were gearing up for a, a you know new product to launch, and that's why they were all working late. But it's like it's not like they were too busy. They were sitting there with their ears against. Yeah, the wall. exactly.
1: And that's yeah. what this this article. The Washington Post article that goes into the bystander effect, which that is a – the the reason – the bystander effect was officially named after – I forget the victim's name, but it was in the 60s. Mm-hmm. She was murdered outside a hotel in Queens. That's right. And dozens of people around saw it happen, mm-hmm. and no one did anything.
0: Everybody just assumed somebody's Everyone
1: calling. else assumes someone else is going to take care of it. Or you don't want to get involved because you're worried that you might get hurt or, or whatever, mm-hmm. but – You're statistically, you are more likely to get involved if it's just you there, whether if you're with someone else. Mm -hmm. So but like this article points out, the female employee first goes to the wall to listen. So something about what was going on made her and her gut think, I need to listen to what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Then she had enough of whatever she heard to ask her other employee to come over and get his opinion on it. Mm -hmm. So your gut is telling you something isn't right here. And instead of listening to that, they just go back to work. And then the next day you hear on the news, oh, no, I was hearing this girl be slaughtered. Yeah. Well, And what you think if you hear on the news, two women were being attacked and sexually assaulted. Yeah. So in the beginning, you might even think, oh, thank God we didn't go over there. We could have been killed ourselves. No. And even though it was Brittany and not two mess men, that could have also happened too. If you walk in, you see this unhinged person wielding a box cutter around and stuff. But you also there's also three of them. Yeah, all three of you go over there. You know, and you or go, ca- like I said, call the fucking cops. That's what you look do. through the just look through
0: the window even mm-hmm. and say, hey, we see something going on in there. Or like you said, just call the cops. We so mm-hmm. heard a disturbance. And like I said, this is gonna be something they probably still think about that they still have mm-hmm. to live with uh, that
1: you were you were a, a phone call away from maybe intervening. Mm-hmm. After a six day trial in which the defense did not call any witnesses, both sides rested. The jury received two charges, first-degree premeditated murder and second-degree specific intent to kill murder. After only an hour of deliberation, the jury came back with their verdict, guilty of first-degree murder. I think that tells you a little bit something about the jury's feelings. I think you walk in that room, everyone sits down, and the, the, they go, all right, raise your hand if you think this is first-degree. Everyone raises their hand. Cool, let's get the bailiff in here. Yeah. like it's cut and dry if anything's even discussed i think so i mean he did the defense because
0: of course you do a lot of stuff's kind of procedural he moved for a directed verdict saying they didn't meet their burden you know you always do that of course it gets denied but you can at least say that you did it um and that way your client doesn't accuse you of being ine- ineffective later but i i just he didn't have a defense like oh no no who, no who even would you have called
1: no Nah. All you can do is try to rebut... Character all witnesses?
0: Do, maybe, yeah. But who would who are you going to call her college roommate that was like, yeah, she stole a bunch of stuff from me, or whatever, her Family, the teammate, whoever it was? Yeah, maybe. But, you know, he, he's his big thing, he hinged it all on, there's no motive here. Why would she call her and go back to the store if this was all a case of a fight, knowing that he could hang his hat on, there's no phone
1: call, the phone call's not coming yeah. in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Also, at one point he does say she lost control in this fight. Yes. This was not a fight. No, it was an a attack. fight. A fight is two people. Mm-hmm. This was one person being attacked and then being attacked and attacked and attacked for 20 minutes as they tried to d- save their life and defend themselves. Yeah. And your, your job as a defense attorney is to frame it. Sure. In the light most
0: favorable to your client. But I think that is, uh, inaccurate to describe it as a fight.
1: hmm. On January 27th, 2012, The sentencing phase of the trial began. The prosecution sought life without parole and called eight witnesses to give victim impact statements before the court to help their case. Jana's father, an ex-Army officer, told the court about the psyche of men after killing someone in battle. Once bloodied, the second time is easier and probably more likely, and that would be true of Norwood if she were someday let out of prison. Phyllis Murray, Jana's mom, described her daughter's death as reported by the Washington Post. As. A pain that ripped through our bodies. The grief is like a lightning strike. It's so powerful. It's so
0: intense. This individual must be removed from society forever.
1: These four parents. <sighs> it's
0: yeah. And sitting this very it takes a lot of strength to sit through them, to sit through the trial. And also, I believe the defense was trying to move for a continuance after the one of her brothers came back from overseas. The parents came up from Texas and you can't do that to the family you know you can't mm-hmm. they all got there they spent not not that you know money is a factor but you know you've invested all this time effort resources to be there and only to go and it's not gonna happen again it's not gonna so they the mentally said, that no just no. drags
1: you down yeah yeah
0: and you want a date certain you were mm-hmm. like we can close this chapter of the, our lives it doesn't mean that the grief's gonna stop but at least there's resolution the trial's over yeah yeah
1: hoping for a sentence with the possibility of parole Brittany's brother spoke on his sister's behalf, saying,
0: There's another side to Brittany that was not brought out at this trial. Please, Your Honor, at least give her some hope. If you leave her with hope, you in turn leave our family with hope. Brittany also asked for mercy, tearfully telling the judge, I don't even ask this for myself. I truly ask this for
1: my family, especially my mom and dad. According to the Daily Mail. Judge Greenberg was unmoved. Looking Brittany directly in her eyes, he used words like, cold-blooded, brutal, calculated, deliberate, devious, malicious. To describe Brittany's character and the atrocities she committed, Judge Greenberg went on to say, I have
0: no doubt, Miss Norwood, that you are a deeply troubled woman. However, my sympathy for your plight, ma'am, does not begin, does not begin to approach what I feel for the Murray family. You will live. You will see another sunrise, another sunset. It may be through a prison window. There'll be Christmases, there'll be telephone calls, there'll be visits.
1: The only visits Jaina Murray will have are those to her grave. He then sentenced her to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Upon reading the sentencing, the packed courtroom of over 200 burst into applause. Without question the right decision. Oh, absolutely. Yes, I think if, I don't know if Maryland has the death penalty, but if they do and it was on the table... I think there's a possibility she could have got that.
0: I mean, it's it's one that really moved everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Really, I mean, you can't see those photos and not feel that way.
1: Prior to learning her fate, Brittany addressed the Murray family. She told them she struggled with what to say to them. When your daughter's gone and I'm the one who was convicted of her murder. She then ended her statement by saying, Before I go to prison, I needed you to hear how deeply sorry I am. I wanted to include this quote of, when your daughter is gone and I'm the one who was convicted did, of her, of her murder. murder. Yes, Not saying, and I'm the one who murdered her. I'm the one who was, I'm the one who was blamed for it. Correct. So, it's again, not, you're not she, taking No, and she, I mean, of course the prosecution is going to say this, but I really do feel like she did not show any remorse throughout the entire proceedings. She seemed more bummed and upset that she was caught. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And that her she's about to go to prison for the rest of her life. And I'm yeah. sure she felt like so, did feel sorry for her family Correct. that she yeah. was going to be away and everything. But
0: I don't know. It's There was an interview with a woman who shared a holding cell with her. And the woman said, what are you in for? And she said, well, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, and the woman said that she was she didn't really want to talk and was I mean, which you don't blame her. It was before the trial. I think it was while she was waiting for uh waiting for trial. But at no point, you know, I think the, the biggest gift you could give as a person who has taken everything from these people mm-hmm. is to say, listen, I was afraid that my life was going to be ruined I hated your daughter because of what she was, you know, what she represented, that she was going to be the one that, you know, really put it into my dreams of being whatever it is, whatever, whatever the motive was. You could give them the gift of saying it just so happened that your daughter was the one that caught me. It wasn't anything. You know, it wasn't personal. Something. Yeah. Something. But she can't even do that. She's going to go. I'm sorry. I was convicted to her on the flip side. I'm sure her lawyer was like, oh, hell no, you're not going to go out there and say I'm the one that did it because we're going to appeal
1: this. Yeah. But well, but they never said she didn't do it. Correct. They were never like they never from the beginning. He said, you we are saying our client did this. It just wasn't premeditated.
0: Yeah. And she could have said, I'm sorry, I took her life or something like that. And you still haven't been admitted to first degree. But she couldn't even do that. She couldn't even mm-hmm. give him that that gift. And you can fuck right off with. I need you to know how deeply
1: sorry I am. Yeah, I think some some things are just hollow words. Yep. Brittany tried to appeal the conviction on two grounds. First, she claimed the statement she made to police during her final interview should not have been admissible because she was not Mirandized. The appeals court disagreed and upheld her conviction. I mean, they tried, but this was Why a very... Why did she claim she wasn't Mirandized? Well, she claimed... So,
0: this is the issue. She claims that she came in uh, on her own accord. They they asked her to come in. Oh, to provide back when she came back about the car? March 16th. They asked her to come in and provide elimination prints. Well, her attorneys argued this was just a ruse to get her to come in. That really mm. they were going to bust her or whatever. But she came in. She had two of her siblings with her. They The siblings left to go get something to eat. And she came and sat in the interview room. It was video recorded. The room had two doors. This is really important because you have to be Miranda's if you're it's a custodial interview. If you're in custody, if you can't leave, if you say, may I leave and they say no, then you have to be you have the right to remain silent, yada, yada, the whole Miranda. So the appeals court, dis- like, they did not agree with this argument because the room she was in had two doors. One of the doors was totally open. The other one was open or kind of open. It was like an hour long interview and she was like speaking informally. It seemed like it, it was almost like just a loose conversation while they were waiting. Like the text would come in and take her hair sample and leave. They would come in and take her fingerprints and leave. They would come in and take a picture and leave. So people were in and out. It was almost like the detectives were just hanging out with her in the waiting room. Uh, she was letting, describing what had happened. Then they asked her, oh, you know, do you know what kind of car Jana drove? And she said, no, no, I, I didn't know. I don't know. I don't know. And the interview ended, and they let her leave. Well, then, the next day, that's when they call her, The detec- they call the detectives and go, hey, we think she's, she, the, the brother says, she's got something she wants to tell you. She's been withholding information. She was really afraid for her safety. So she didn't tell you guys, but we've convinced her that she needs to tell the truth. This was on March 17th. So then they said, okay, the detectives say, okay, come in on March 18th. So then she comes in on March 18th, and again, she's accompanied by her siblings. They go into a room and they start telling, you know, she starts telling them, I think I'm gonna move back to Seattle. I may move in with my brother. Um, and she said, Well, my only concern is that I just want to be available to you all during this investigation. But yeah, I'm I'm about to move out of state. Well, out of nowhere, she just goes, Anyway, um, I'm here because I want to tell you about the car. So she tells that they were attacked, but before they were sexually assaulted, that's when the attacker said, you have to go and move this car. And she moved the car. And that's when they're like, what? You were driving her car? By the way, at this point, they already assumed that they did, that that she was because of the blood samples in the car. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like, what happened? Why, why didn't you just run off? And she said, well, I was afraid for my life. I was afraid that the attackers knew where I lived, that they maybe had my wallet and they would have my address and they'd be able to come get me. And then she said, well, we've been all over this. We've been over this. And she just kind of brushes them off. And the detective says, well, yeah, but every time we go over it, something else comes out. So I'm just mm-hmm. trying to get the story straight here. And then, bonk, that's when the trial court said, because this is recorded. I think it was a two-hour interview. At this point, for about 45 minutes in, it's a taped, uh, taped interview. The trial court says, anything said after this of I'm just trying to get this straight I'm trying to get this as straight as possible. Then it became a custodial interrogation interview,
1: and, and so she, because she hadn't been Miranda, they said it what shouldn't be admissible.
0: Yes, and so you know, basically at this point, it should she should have had her, been Mirandized because before this all the crap that she came out with in the the other interview, she was just kind of loose talking, and they were not considering her a suspect, and also. Uh, she could leave at any time, and at this point, they were—I don't believe they were going to let her go. She uh, was arrested later that day, so it, mm-hmm. I mean, it was. And throughout the, it was pretty damning footage, uh, footage and damning, you know, testimony, not testimony, but um, interview answers from her, because they're—they're they're like you're lying. They start trying to bust her, um, and then they kind of lay out the case of, this is what we think happened. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, second, Brittany argued that when Detective O'Brien testified regarding the cut on her hand, he was improperly testifying as an expert. During the investigation, Detective O'Brien had noticed a one to two inch cut on the palm of Brittany's right hand. In his testimony at the trial, Officer O'Brien explained that his attention was drawn to that cut because injuries like that are normally caused when a blade slips from one's grip and slides down the hand as they are using the knife in a stabbing. The jury heard this testimony, but the judge instructed that they disregard it. The appeals court was unconvinced by this argument as well and affirmed Brittany's conviction, saying the evidence of Norwood's guilt was overwhelming.
0: Yeah, so it's just an issue. You can't if you're going to call an expert, you have to designate them as an expert in advance. And here they called him in as a uh, an officer who had just you know w- visited her when she was in the hospital to collect her clothes and things. But then he looked at her hand and was like. That Mm -hmm. kind of I've seen those before. And he had been an army medic, I believe. And so he had knowledge beyond that of a average everyday person. And so because they hadn't properly laid the foundation and offered him up as an expert, which allows the defense to present to prepare their cross, then they try to get that kicked. But the appeals court basically said, that's fine. And and A, it was actually, you know, it was um, stricken. The judge just said, you heard testimony of how this wound happened? disregard
1: that and that happened during the trial yes so then if the if that happened why would they even try and appeal on that if they had already stricken it from the record they let him also continue to testify about his
0: experience with knives to try to lay the foundation but they did strike the fact that he thought that that was coming that way Mm. and so they approached the bench and said listen you know you're we're objecting to this being allowed in there the judge to let it in but uh it was not a uh it, it wasn't an error to the point of being overturned on
1: appeal well, you can also you can't unring a bill you know that's once kind of the, yeah that's once kind you've already it. heard it you've already heard it yeah after the court affirmed britney's conviction lead prosecutor john mccarthy told the washington post her direct appeal options are over and hopefully this brings the case to a close Brittany remains incarcerated at the Maryland Correctional Institution for Women in Jessup, Maryland. Jana's dad, David Murray, told ABC News that his daughter was
0: One of the most fearless people I've ever known in my life, and that's as objective as a father can get. I really admired her for everything she did and everything she represented. Her mom added, People have always commented that it was her smile and it was her hugs. Whether she knew you for two seconds or years, those were her
1: greetings. She wanted
0: people to feel comfortable and
1: happy. Jana's family started the Jana Troxell Murray Foundation, which makes annual scholarship distributions to schools and organizations, which contributed to Jana's academics, athletics, faith, travel, fine arts, and overall personal growth with the intended outcome of bettering the lives of others. Donations can be made at the Janatmf.org. I will link that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything to say. Nothing brings a child back. You don't ever get over that. I mean, that's amazing that they're trying to find some some way to help others through her and, you know, give her a legacy and everything. But Man, the other victim impact statements, too, from the family, because, you know, both of her brothers gave one and the mm-hmm. wives of the brothers and everything. And one of the wives said, you know, um, there's no real laughter anymore. Mm-mm. Like, this family is completely broken. We all have nightmares of, of what she went through and everything. You know, mm-hmm. um, you said how you read that the the brother that was deployed.
0: <sighs> yes, he received a package a few days after she passed away and he said, you know, it felt like it was coming from traveling through time. And she had mm-hmm. sent him a little Lululemon hat because he mentioned it was cold when he and they both like to run. And a little note that said, I can't wait till you're back home. I want to hear all about what's been going on. We're going to catch up. It's going to be great. And, you know, he gets the news that his sister's been killed and then he gets the box. God, devastating. I mean, like you said, the whole family is is it, it goes beyond the singular victim. And especially, I I have such disdain for a, a person who has no remorse, won't even, and I call it a gift, and really it's just owed. Owing them whatever explanation, and also taking culpability of their actions. Like, you know, who's to say, you know, if you're accused of a crime that you did commit, clearly, that you wouldn't try to push it down as second degree or you wouldn't try to appeal it it's like just let these people have peace and plead guilty and just go to jail you know mm-hmm. just yeah give them that but no you drag it out it's eight days you appeal it they've got this you know knot in their stomach like oh god is she gonna get out on a technicality and no i mean the, the appeals court said it's the error is harmless beyond a reasonable doubt there's so much overwhelming evidence. These little nitpicky things you're trying to pick out are are stupid. Please go, you know, go. Do not pass go. Go to jail. But I, I, I think that's everybody's time and waste, money wasting everybody's time and money. That's how I feel. And and you know, we all deserve our day in court. I think in this case, she's taken so much from them. You could have just couldn't you have just given them that? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know.
1: Well, we've talked a lot about what we think, but yeah, I think. what else do we think? I will say one thing. That this is what I just can't understand, which is, like I said earlier, what I'm sure keeps her parents up at night, too, is why? That's what I'm saying. Why? And not not just... Of course, none of it would be justified. Even if she hit her over the head once and that killed her and it was all over yoga pants, that, of course, is not justified. Why, though, the... Just gross annihilation. I mean, it, it it's it's a crime of passion. It's it's a crime. You see, with people, you know, like that know each other. That somebody cheated on somebody, and like you mm-hmm. have all this anger. I mean, they barely knew each other. Her family said, you know, we've never even heard of this girl till this happened. It's not like Jaina went out. They went out. They were friends mm-hmm. or anything like that. She believe- only yes. worked together for three weeks, and they said they did, had no shifts or very few shifts together. Yeah. I mean, they barely knew each other. Yeah. And so I, I just cannot understand the level of violence that took place when she has no history of anything before this. How, if she really did just snap. My question is, why wasn't there a psych evaluation done? Mm -hmm. And and there probably was. I can't imagine there wasn't, Mm -hmm. but clearly they didn't find anything or they would have admitted that as Mm -hmm. some kind of, you know, insanity defense. Yes. So how does a person just go from one day being a soccer star, you're working at an upscale boutique, the next day you've committed one of the most heinous crimes in the history of that state? Yeah, that's and that's a great question because you we like to think and
0: again, we talked about in the last episode of why people study true crime. Why do we look into this? Why do we care? And I think we care because, like I said, we want to tell people stories. We want to ask ourselves, how did this happen? Why did this happen? And this case is one of those ones that there's just not an answer, because I think we like to see, uh, you know, you talk about the. Not that we like to, but, you know, it's it's a little bit more comforting, I think, when you see violence done and you can look at someone's backstory mm-hmm. and you go, oh, well, they were significantly abused as a child. So all they knew was violence growing up. So then when they were a teenager, they started hurting animals. And then when they were in college, they, you know, whatever. And you see a trajectory, you see this, a pattern
1: this or is something a, leading up to it to where you're like, well. It kind of makes sense that you yeah. went in this direction. It tracks at least, yeah. you know, where you're like, oh,
0: that's a but this is a hard left turn. Yeah. From even even if, you know, again, we have the the statements of the prosecutor and we have the statements of her classmates that she had committed these crimes or was, you know, whatever they called her a klepto or whatever. That's it's a far cry mm-hmm. to jump from stealing things from people's lockers to just mutilating mm-hmm. a coworker, a, a, you know, it's not like some like with you know Susan Walters of oh someone was trying to kill me so I had to kill them back. I mean it was instigating
1: a three, to inflict three hundred and thirty one grotesque wounds on yes. a human being. Yes, that is, and then I I mean it's just I can't even wrap my head around it. The really truly and then and then yeah and lay there to lay there all night. In pools of blood, you're smelling death. You're smelling yes. blood. You went. You put on those shoes, stomped around, and stomped around in your coworker's blood, and walked all through the the store. You left to, the store to move her car and yes, came back and sat in her car for an hour and a half in yeah. her car. Yeah, with where she probably had, you know. Just her little belongings out. Yeah, and everything. all this stuff. It's yeah, your car. Your car. It's yeah. your, a car is very personal. Mm-hmm. She sat in there, getting her fucking blood all over it for an hour and a half, thinking, "How am I going to cover this up?" Mm-hmm. She she cut the crotch to her pants. Yeah. To sell this thing, she told them she had been sexually assaulted with a wooden hanger by these men. Yeah. I she went into horrible details. Correct. That Uh, how victims of of actual sexual assault feel, knowing that she used a story like that to try and get... And then, like you said, God forbid those two dudes that just happen to be walking by get arrested and then sentenced for something like this, and then she's just walking
0: free. And I think Mr. Murray is right. After the first one, it may not be too Mm -hmm. far to just do it again, especially Mm -hmm. if you get away with it. I mean, thank God she was caught... Uh, and and I, like you said, it's grotesque. The the testimony, if you watch the Oxygen Snapped episode, it has the audio, not testimony, the interview with uh, Detective Mackey where she's, you know, being really sympathetic. And Brittany said, oh, I, I'm i probably going to misquote her, but she said something like, oh, he didn't kill me because he said he liked to he liked to fuck me or something just just gross. And in this. Just so built aggressive. Up lie. And, yeah, built yeah. up this lie. So definitely one of the all-time worst people I think we've covered uh, on here. For sure.
1: For sure. Uh, yeah. For sure. I, would, uh, I was thinking about that the other night. Like, is this the worst person we've ever covered? And, of course, we've covered serial killers. We've covered, you know, a ton of murderers and everything. This one definitely stands out to me. It does. I mean, this one, I'm telling you, this one in the White Rock Machete are two of the most impactful stories that we've covered in terms of impact impacting me uh, personally impacting yeah is that a word yeah god my brain just short-circuited uh negatively is also what i was gonna say no for sure but you know i mean it's yeah and it's again like the the assistant state's attorney said like the reason this is hard to grapple with is you don't want it to be a person like this because no. we all work with people like this. And there therefore, that means this could have been any of us. And it's true. And, and like we, you
0: know, not to harp on it, but when you see somebody's background and you go, oh, man, they were, you know, and we don't know the total details of her background. But, you know, she's got siblings who are doctors and management consultants and her dad owned an upholstery business. And she got a college scholarship, which is so exciting. So it's it seems like. A reasonably normal background, we like mm-hmm. again, we don't know, maybe there there's was... not a ton
1: out there about her, correct,
0: and maybe there's and maybe there's more behind the scenes you know that we're not aware of. I don't think anything in her background would at all justify or explain this whatsoever,
1: no, and I, I, I mean I think her family it's... was just as shocked as anybody, true,
0: true, yeah, and so. Whew, it's it's one of the it's one of the tough ones because there is again I, I think like you said we've covered serial killers and everybody but we can at least somewhat track that versus this is sort of an out of the blue one it's a hard one to cover yeah
1: and I think especially um, you know we just um, did that interview with uh, Libby from the Palo Alto's High School yes. the other day um, hi Libby and thank you to all of your classmates who recommend. Uh, interviewing us we had we enjoyed it very much but she asked us why do you think women specifically Mm -hmm. like listening to true crime stuff and i think this is a good example of that of if we listen to things like a serial killer or someone was in a really bad relationship and then you know that their their husband or boyfriend ended up killing them or whatever we can all say okay well but that's not me. Mm-hmm. I'm not putting myself in these dangerous situations where I could become a victim or anything, you know. I I'm, I'm trying to do something to prevent that. Well, all of us have jobs mm-hmm. that you just go to without thinking about and then something like this happens. So when we hear stories like this, it makes – you're kind of trying to, like, prepare how you could handle things differently if you're in a situation like that to where maybe this isn't the outcome. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. And it and it does help us walk through it mentally. Of,
0: mm-hmm. but, but she, you know, she couldn't have but done anything. But she did everything she could. She did she everything could. she could. I mean,
1: 107 defense suits she couldn't have done anything else. No. She was trying to get out the door. I mean, again – If you look at the crime scene photos, that back hallway is just covered in blood, and it's because she was probably running and crawling trying to get out the door. Well, in addition to Libby that we wanted to shout out and thank, we have a couple of other thank yous as well. I was so
0: excited to uh, do the new bit on Patreon we have that's called Judge Christie, where uh, we give Christy really weird legal questions and she is the judge and her rulings are
1: final. But they're they're real questions from the Internet. Correct.
0: They're real legal questions from the Internet. And I work I act as bailiff and I bring the questions <laughs> and Christy gives her rulings and it's a ton of fun. But it Jan was. actually tagged us in the the crow post. We covered about a crow's attacking and then saving. But then also was it nefarious uh, people in uh, a neighborhood. So she, I, I appreciate it uh, that she tagged us in that. And I. In my excitement, forgot to to thank her. And also, uh, a mystery has been solved, Christy. Half, <gasps> half of a mystery has been solved. Half of a mystery. Hey, it's Jenny on Instagram. Uh, let us know that she is the one who wrote us a note in the Cincinnati memorabilia. So the Loveland Frogman shirts we received. We still don't know who sent the Loveland Frogman shirts. If it was you, <laughs> please let us know. Uh, but Jenny said that she was uh, the one that packaged it up and sent us the the treats and the nice notes. So thank you so much, Jenny, we got some awesome. presents too, Christy. Oh, we got
1: so, so many presents. Uh, such a nice haul. If, if Heather messaged me and said, you like candles? And I said, <laughs> yeah, I'm pro candle. And she said, excellent news because we got some candles and they are so smell. Uh, I like to say candles are flavors. Oh, I love that. I like this fragrance. I, I, yeah. So I really like the flavor of these candles. They're Circle E candles. I actually worked at a store in college in the mall in Denton. I can't remember the name of the store and in fact I'd completely forgotten I'd worked there until I saw these candles, but we sold these there and they were the best seller by far. Circle E Candles in Fredericksburg, Texas. Thank you Sally Davidson for Thank hooking you. us up. That I got my uh, candle that's
0: just called red. My whole yeah. I love it. I can't even describe it to you. It's just red and you know what? <laughs> red smells freaking good. My office yeah. and the bathroom that's adjacent to my office.
1: Fantastic. Got to have it in the bathroom. That's where you do your best work. That's right. And Olivia DeFolka from Canada. She sent us some amazing Canadian treats, which Ella uh, proceeded to devour immediately after me <laughs> opening them. Some Purdy's Hedgehogs, which is these cute little hedgehog chocolates with hazelnut, ketchup mm-hmm. lays, which are so good. She sent you a mask with a bear. Mm-hmm. And I got a sloth mask, and she sent Ella a little super, a Wonder Woman mask. It's cute. I this love that. So cute. I love that people think of Ella when sending a thing. It warms my heart when you guys include her. <laughs> it's like she's our, it's like a little girl's. Our little girls club. She's our executive, executive yeah. producer. Uh,
0: you have to include her. I love when I open a box and there's three things and it's like two
1: adult size and a little tiny one. I'm like, <laughs> a tiny little math. She also sent us Shits Creek stickers, which are now all over my laptop, a <laughs> magnet and lip balm. So, so nice. We
0: appreciate it. And Chelsea Matthews of Bigfoot Fan Art on Instagram. Wow. We we shouted wow. it out on Fan Art Friday on Instagram. Please go and check it out. Oh, my God. It is I think it's watercolor. It's We're fighting over where it's going to live. We're going to try to figure out how to print. We're trying to
1: figure out how to get a print made of it so uh, we can both s- have one. Because I want
0: to put it in the, the studio, which is at my house, selfishly. But Christy also wants one. And it's Bigfoot, and he's hanging out. Mothman is bringing him a DQ blizzard. There is Krusty the Clown holding a clown's rights balloon coming out. <laughs> uh, there's uh, someone getting sucked up by an alien in the background. It's just a, an overall, there's little signs with little quotes. There's so many Easter uh, eggs. inside jokes, little Easter eggs so in so it. Thank yeah, you, thank it you, so thank you, thank you, Chelsea
1: much. Matthews. We appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you guys, too. And we love providing Sinister you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation. Creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the costs of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like
0: ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-zone, and patron-exclusive video and audio content, including our Am I the Asshole and our Relationship segments where we read and discuss the best that Reddit has
1: to offer and our new Judge Christy segment where Christy lays down the law. I gotta get my gavel. (laughs) You also now have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We will also be hopping on occasionally and hosting monthly Q&As where you can ask us all your burning questions.
0: For our patrons not in the U.S., you now have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available.
1: Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in
0: pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming, and if you want some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop
1: in the top banner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram
0: and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at SinisterhoodChristy.
1: I'm on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather. I'm on Instagram at Heather vs. the World and on Twitter at MCK versus the World. As always, the devil
0: rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout outs Sarah Miller, Sarah Barlow, Maggie,
1: Tabby Berry, Rachel Welsh, Leah Rosen, Callie Mize, Allie McLaughlin, Carly Geddig, Rachel Kenningham, Rob Aliberti, Laura J., Mara. Carmen Nowak. Sarah Jowers. Madison Schrock. Haley Elizabeth. Jennifer Ryan. Devin Wiggins. Elizabeth Sean Law. Angie Williams. Kristen Timmerman. Gabriella Cavanaugh. Nicole Samarano. Cameron Dale. Wendy Lambert. Ashley Sabota.
0: Christina DeMello. Chelsea Matthews. Elizabeth Hook. Jennifer Armentrout.
1: Tay M. Kimberly Walker. Andrea Benet, Kaitlin Mueller, Kristen Timmerman, Brooke Ayana, James Harrington, Krissa, Ashley Volkman, Peyton Kazemka, Nancy Alvarado, Leslie Hasbold, Aaron Heyman, Erica, Kristen, Samantha Farrell, Haley Reynolds, Chelsea Colagioia, Cassidy Tadden, Tasha Powers, and Allison Lindsay. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do this without you. We sincerely appreciate it. We're still making our way through all of the uh, people that signed up while we were on maternity leave. So if you haven't heard your name yet, we promise it's coming. And we couldn't appreciate you more, especially during these trying times. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy.